Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hey, hey, y'all, what is going on? Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. We are on episode 55 of the podcast after taking a week off here on Wednesday, March 2nd. Happy March, everyone. Thank you all for listening to Xander's Facts Podcast. And remember, if you like the facts, if you think you're going to like the facts on this podcast, remember to click the follow button, download this podcast episode, rate the podcast, review the podcast, then go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z, and most importantly, tell all your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts Podcast, go listen to any of our past episodes. Last week, we didn't have a podcast episode. So sad. But we did bring back our segment on critical race theory, critical fact theory. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to that, and subscribe to Xander's Weekend Facts, our Xander's Facts newsletter, which comes out every Sunday morning. The link is in this episode's description. Go check that out. And then go check out Xander's Facts Linktree, which is also linked on this episode's description for all the Xander's Facts that you need. We have got a huge podcast. This is going to be one of, if not the longest Xander's Facts episode. Seriously? And for good reason. We have got lots of stuff to talk about, including two separate guests on this week's edition of Xander's Facts, first time ever, we've got two separate guests who are not together. How about that? We've got our Xander's Facts NBA analyst, Hillbilly. He is here breaking down his top 14 contenders in the NBA. We're going to talk about that later. But first, we're going to start with Ukraine. Obviously, what's going on over in Ukraine is horrible. And there's a lot of misinformation that's going around online about what's going on in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I brought in an expert. I brought in a first-time Xander's Facts guest, Dr. Bobby, who is the director of the Russian program at Virginia Tech. He knows what he's talking about more than anyone that I know about this topic. So that's where we're going to start the podcast this week with Ukraine, Russia, everything that's going on over there. Let's start there with Dr. Bobby as the Xander's Facts podcast continues. Xander's Facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. We are continuing on the podcast here on episode 55 with a brand new Xander's Facts guest. We have got Dr. Bobby. He is the director of the Russian program at Virginia Tech. Dr. Bobby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Xander. Good to be here. Well, the thing we're going to talk about is definitely not good. We've got some serious stuff to talk about going on over in Ukraine. As You all probably know by now, Russia has invaded Ukraine. And this is the things that we're seeing are sad. They're terrible. It's just awful. But I brought in Dr. Bobby to, you know, basically describe what's going on over there because he can do it a lot better than I can. So first question I've got for you, Dr. Bobby, is basically just an overview. Why is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, invading Ukraine right now? Well, right now, I think he actually saw an opportunity. You know, I think he considers the uh, the West, Western Europe, and the United States at a particularly weak point. And I think he also thought that time might have been running out as far as you know expanding the uh, the Russian sphere of influence. 
And I think that is probably, you know, as to the question why that is probably why this is taking place is, you know, an expansion of the Russian sphere of influence. I know they're, you know, throwing a lot of words around about, you know, restoring the Russian empire, restoring the, uh, the Soviet Union and things like that. There is a bit of a 19th century mentality, actually even more of a colonialist, uh, imperialist mentality going on here. But really, I think what it what it boils down to more than anything else is trying to expand the Russian sphere of influence, trying to regain, I think, what Putin and a lot of Russians think was lost with the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Yeah. And you said Putin thought that the West was weak and probably wouldn't unify against him. But that has not been the case so far. I think, he, you know, he probably thought especially the U.S. was at a weak point with everything that's been going on. But that's not what has happened. They've been unified against Russia right now. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that was probably pretty surprising. Probably the most surprising in this sphere would be the uh, the very strong reaction of Germany and probably to a lesser extent, France. You know, the, the Nord Stream pipeline, I mean, it was almost immediately canceled or at least, you know, put on indefinite hold by Germany almost as soon as this started. And I think that was probably something that was was a little bit unexpected. Unfortunately, it looks too like the Russian government has dug itself into a bit more of a hole here with this. You know, on the one hand, they're very concerned to show a lot of strength. However, the more they do this, the more this becomes, you know, more of an atrocity. It's it's difficult to see how it would be more of an atrocity than it already is. You're attacking a neighbor on completely false pretenses. The more this happens, the more this demonstration of strength tries to go, the more the West is going to be united against it. And probably the more likely it is that Putin and the Russian government are going to lose the, I wouldn't necessarily call it support, but at least the tacit support of China on this and become further and further isolated. Yeah, so we're going to get more onto the what the West is doing, the sanctions, what effects those are going to have in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about Putin because there's been a lot of news about or you know, you've seen in the speeches he's given his, you know, he seemed angrier. So, how has his demeanor changed if at all over the last few weeks? Uh, well, actually over the last few weeks I think it's been pretty consistent. However, if you look back over the last few years, and certainly over the last 22 years since he's been in power, there does seem to be a marked change in what is going on. You know, I know that a lot of the American and European commentators have talked about, you know, the distance he is obviously keeping from other world leaders, not only other world leaders, but even members of his own security council. Um, he's essentially talking to them from across long tables. There was a um, a shot from the uh, the Russian media yesterday of him talking with uh, Lavrov, his foreign minister, and you know it looks like they're about twenty five feet away from each other. Now this is something very different. I'm sure it's related to COVID and perhaps some kind of COVID paranoia. But essentially, the way a lot of Russian offices are set up, there will be the desk of whoever is in charge with a table that comes out of it in sort of like a T-shape. And this is how Putin used to collect, uh, used to conduct a lot of his meetings. That has definitely changed, you know, and it does seem to reflect him being more of an isolated leader in this sense. I don't know how much of this is for show, 
I think a lot of the things he's been doing in his speeches and in his meetings lately have been completely for show. But it's definitely something that a lot of people are taking note of. I think the biggest difference is this calm, cool, collected and calculating Vladimir Putin that we've you know, sort of been used to over the last 22 years or so has really changed. And I think last Monday in his uh, his, his, his speech to the, uh, to the country, you know, and again, it's, it's difficult to tell who this audience was. I mean, obviously it was partially, at least for Ukraine, it became extremely menacing, threatening, and more than I've, you know, seen before, almost, almost snarling in its denunciation of Ukraine, the Ukrainians, at that point, it was obvious that the invasion was a done deal and it was going to commence within hours. That's just not something that we've really seen before. Yeah. And when he was making that speech, a big term that was thrown out that he said was denazify, which is obviously ridiculous because the president of Ukraine is Jewish and had family members who died in the Holocaust. So you know, what did he mean by that? Is he like trying just trying to justify this war or does it mean something else? Yeah, the word is extremely charged in, well, it, it's extremely charged anywhere, but especially in Russia. The use of this, um, you know, calling the people in Kiev fascisti, fascists, Nazis, neo-Nazis, this isn't very new. I mean, this was, this pretty much went all over the place, went viral in um, the Russian government language and the Russian state media ever since Maidan, you know, the uprisings back in, uh, in 2014 that eventually ousted the, um, the Moscow-backed president of Ukraine. So from that perspective, this word is not necessarily very new, but using it like this in combination with terms like genocide. One of the main claims and probably the strongest justification he's using toward, you know, for the for the Russian people to try and accept this is that there was a genocide of Russian speakers, ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine. Um, this is also the reason for the recognition of the Donbass breakaway republic in Ukraine and the uh, Lugansk breakaway republic, you know, as as actual countries farcical as this was, this really might have been like the uh, the first shot going out. Now, World War II in, in Russia and the Soviet Union was far more devastating than it was in the West. You know, they, they lost upwards of 20 million people, probably around 24 million or, or 25 million. This is also something that I mean, exists in the national psyche as a great source of pride. It's almost natural that he would start describing the people that he is going to put forth as enemies, as Nazis. We're getting we're getting this in the West too. It's certainly not just the uh, not just the Ukraine. You know, he sees the Ukrainian regime as a puppet regime installed by fascists from the West as well. This also kind of ties into the uh, the description of NATO. You know, the argument against NATO, and it's not an illegitimate argument, is that this this expansion of NATO from the west to the east is is supposed to be mirroring the the attacks from Germany in the 20th century, and you know, to a certain extent, even the attack of Napoleon back in 1812, where Russia is is threatened from the west by an expanding west. 
they're really, I mean, the, the term Nazi is guaranteed to get the Russians up in arms. To the extent to which they believe this, however, is, is a different matter. I mean, I think pretty much every Russian who knows anything about international affairs knows that Zelensky is, is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to ask you about, about the Russian people. How do they feel about this invasion? Because most of what they can, you know, experience is, you know, blatant Russian propaganda. But you've still got the Internet and Twitter and stuff like that where you can, you know, find Western sources and outlets. But what is the overall mentality of the Russian people towards this invasion? This is this is a little bit hard to tell. Um, You know, the demonstrations we've seen up to this point have been pretty strong. Russian Russian state media is towing the line. Looking at it this morning, though, I mean, there seem to be maybe a couple of, you know, different cracks coming in as if they're not, you know, necessarily even believing their own reporting. You know, as you probably know, they are not allowed to use the word war to describe what's going on here. You know, you can use it, you can use it in different contexts and things like that, but you cannot use it to describe what's happening in, in the Ukraine. It is a special operation. You cannot use the word Tarjenia, invasion. This is something that is you know, just, just completely taboo at this point, despite the fact that, you know, pretty much everybody knows what it is. However, the state media is concentrating, I wouldn't say completely, but almost completely on what is happening in the eastern Ukraine. They are trying to focus on supposed atrocities committed by Ukrainian forces in Donetsk and Lugansk uh, to the exclusion of just about everything else. Kiev is barely being mentioned at all. And when it is, it's, you know, the fact that there are these fascists in Kiev who are, you know, dictating these atrocities against the Russian speakers in, in eastern Ukraine. This is being put forth as the justification. To the extent that people believe this, I've got to think that faith in this is is deteriorating probably rapidly, given the extent to which we've seen the protests, as well as the things that the independent media is reporting in Russia. Honestly, the way things are going right now, I think the clock is ticking on Dost, the independent television network, and Novaya Gazeta, uh, another independent media outlet and newspaper. They are being pretty careful about what they say, but they're covering many of the same things that that the Western media is. The further this sinks into brutality, I think, and it's looking to do that within the next few hours, if not days, the more they're going to have to crack down on any dissent. And I think this is probably where, if anywhere, this whole invasion is really going to backfire. This is a fact. So I wanted to transition from in Russia to Ukraine. We're recording this on Tuesday morning, and it appears as though right now the Russian army is encircling the capital of Kiev and Kharkiv, which is right on the border with Russia. And you just said as of Tuesday morning, it looks like this is about to get much worse. How has Ukraine's army been holding up so far? And they've been protecting Kiev so far, but how much longer can they do that? If Russia just keeps um, bringing in resources, you know, I don't. I don't think I'm a military expert, but I definitely did not expect them to hold out this long. You know, I expected Kiev to fall within days. 
Much more surprising, though, is what's happening happening in, in Kharkov, uh, Kharkiv in, in Ukrainian. This was something that I really would have expected to fall within the first day or two, um, given its proximity to Russia, given how close Russian artillery already was to it. I thought this was going to, you know, was going to collapse pretty quickly. As of, you know, right now, it still hasn't. So, I mean, you, you have to think that Ukrainian forces, whether they're, you know, the regular Ukrainian army or just citizens with AKs has acquitted itself amazingly well. You know, it is far different than what anybody expected. And I think certainly far different than what, uh, what Putin expected. That said, it's obvious that they are going to, I think, try to make up for their mistakes. And I think they're going to do it in an extremely brutal way. You know, we saw this, this missile attack on a, uh, on a government building in Kharkiv. This actually comes on the heels of what seems to have been cluster bombs being used yesterday. Um, you know, this is a, a munition that is banned in most countries. It's an incredibly cruel device. You know, and of course, it, it looks like they're also moving in thermobaric munitions as well. Whether or not the Russian forces are going to go in and, you know, just completely flatten the cities, I think remains to be seen. You know, it really is. It's a worst case scenario for everybody, including the Russians, if they do that. If it happens, I don't really see them, you know, holding out for more than a week. Now, the cities fall, the government falls if they're to arrest Zelensky. I don't see this ending by any means. You know, the Ukrainians uh, have a history of partisan warfare, and I would expect it to continue, um, you know, at least resistance in some form of varying strengths for quite some time. That's what I was going to ask you. If Russia does take Kiev, what is likely to happen? Are they going to install a puppet government? And how are the Ukrainian people going to respond to that? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they would certainly install a, a puppet government. They definitely want to go back to the, the pre-2014 status quo as far as Ukraine goes. I would expect, I, well, at least I would have earlier expected there to be a Ukrainian government in exile set up. But it's obvious at this point that there is going to be a very strong Ukrainian resistance. You know, there's there's really no doubt about it. One of the things which I think surprised a lot of Western observers, as well as, you know, the Russian authorities, which actually should not have come as as much of a surprise, is the is the motivation that the Ukrainians feel as far as defending their country. You know, it's it is worth pointing out that they are not strangers to Russian aggression. They're actually not strangers to genocidal acts against them coming obviously from, from Nazi Germany in the 1940s, but from Moscow. One of the things that isn't really being mentioned too much in the media is the Khaladamor, um, the engineered famine of 1932 and 1933, where around 4 million Ukrainians died, basically were starved to death you know, by, by Stalinist Moscow as a way to, you know, to finally crush any Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian resistance to, to Soviet power. You know, we don't see anything on that scale, you know, yet. And I, you know, I don't think it's going to quite, you know, hit that extent. But, you know, the Ukrainians have not forgotten this, even if the Russians have. So we talked about how um, the West has united behind Ukraine and they have sanctioned Russia. They've sanctioned their economy. They've sanctioned Putin personally. 
And, you know, that's caused the Russian economy to crash. The stock market has gone way down. The ruble has crashed. So what effect are these sanctions from the U.S. and the U.K. and the European Union, those countries, are they going to have on the Russian economy now and potentially later? Uh, well, the bigger effects are going to be, be felt later. You know, the increasing isolation from the global financial system is going to hit is going to hit Russia very hard. Um, now, it will probably hit Putin a little bit less, but if it can hit, you know, hit the uh, the oligarchs, you know, upon whom his, you know, his his support really really depends. I think that may change things. By and large, though, I'm not really certain that that the sanctions are going to have a much larger effect. I do think, though, at least the, the financial financial sanctions, closing European airspace to Russian planes, further isolating this country, actually, I think is going to be just as strong as, you know, taking them out of the SWIFT system. And remember, this is not completely, I mean, it is, it is not something that they have done full scale, at least not yet. I think more at issue, and I think the question that's probably going to be coming up in the, uh, in the coming weeks, if this really does turn into, you know, you know, I hate to say it, but really a crime against humanity, which, you know, to a certain extent it already is, shutting off Russian natural gas and oil. At this point, that hasn't happened. And I don't know that there's necessarily going to be much of a stomach for it, at least in the United States, which is, is probably too bad. But I think this would, this would make things much more painful and I think have a much stronger and probably more immediate effect, you know, regular financial uh, sanctions. Is there anything else that could the US, the West could do besides that, that could actually harm Russia and could be you know, act as a deterrent to stop Russia right now? Well, yeah, I mean, really the best thing, and I, you know, I'm definitely a pacifist. I mean, I am not in favor of, you know, war in just about any circumstance, but almost the best thing we could do is keep getting them stinger missiles and the, uh, the javelin anti-tank weapons. To Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be a difficult task, but I think, you know, the United States has been able to do this in situations where it has been, you know, even more difficult before. You know, I have to think that, you know, the Ukrainian military is getting some, well, quite a bit of advice, you know, from the Pentagon. Um, I mean, looking at these, you know, these long columns of Russian vehicles stretching towards Kiev, I mean, I'm sure that in the Pentagon, they are just you know, licking their chops at this kind of target, you know, and trying, trying to find a way for the Ukrainians to be able to hit that. I mean, this, for all the talk that Putin was making about Ukraine somehow being an existential threat to Russia, ridiculous as that was, I mean, these vehicles are an ex existential threat to Ukraine, certainly Ukrainian sovereignty. You know, I think military advisors, weapons, you know, even if we cannot put personnel on the ground is going to be very important for what what happens in the coming days. All right. So finally, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is the end game here? What is Putin trying to do? Could he potentially attack NATO, cyber attacks on NATO, any of that? Well, actually, would cyber attacks on NATO, what response would come from NATO from that, actually, first off? Well, yeah, first off, I'm surprised we haven't seen these already. And you know, I'm, I, again, I'm not an expert in this field, so I don't really know if they are holding something in reserve or if they've been blocked. 
you know, Russia has a, a vaunted cybersecurity department, um, you know, and they, they are definitely capable of taking out cyber attacks. They've done so in Ukraine before. Oddly, though, the lights are on. Internet is working, much to the detriment of the Russian military. You know, the Ukrainian authorities are scoring propaganda victories almost every five minutes through social media. How Russia has not shut that down, I don't understand. I don't know if they've been blocked or they're just, they're holding something in reserve. Could and would they cyber attack NATO? Yes, definitely. You know, and I'm sure the responses will be, you know, to sort of steal the rhetoric that's coming out of the, uh, the American government, you know, proportional. The end game, though, is really difficult to see. You know, I don't really know if, if the country is going to be divided up, if Russia is going to sort of like stop on the eastern side of the Dnieper River or to expand all the way to the west. I would, ex- I would assume at this point that they'll probably try to, you know, to subjugate the entire country. They probably expected to do this already. Once that stops, you know, it, it's it's sort of a minor detail to it. But I would also imagine that they would take uh, Moldova, at least to the east of the uh, the Dniester River in Transnistria, which you know the so-called authorities there are, would be essentially begging to to be returned to Russia. The Russian army is already there, you know, so that would would not be a stretch. Belarus has already established itself as a client state. And, you know, they're going to fall further and further under the thrall of Moscow. Further east, Kazakhstan has actually been a little bit surprising. Um, I think they were asked to send troops to this. Russia sent troops to to Kazakhstan right around um, December and early January when they were having uprisings there to try and quell the uprisings. Thus far, Kazakhstan has not, has not responded in kind. Um, so it'll definitely be interesting, interesting to see what happens over there. As far as attacking NATO, yeah, I mean, this is, this is probably the scariest question of all. You know, we saw how, I think it was the day before yesterday, that, that Putin made a big show of putting, you know, the nuclear forces on alert. This is actually, this actually, I mean, to sort of, you know, sidetrack this for a little bit, this was a very, very interesting and strange move. It's unclear really to me who this was for. You know, it had to be for the domestic audience. If he were to put his nuclear forces on alert and not say anything, we would know right away. So, I mean, it, it, it would not necessarily be a secret other than to the, uh, the Russian people probably, but he wants them to know that this is what he's doing. He probably also wants, you know, people in Western Europe and the United States to know that he has this nuclear saber and he is rattling it very, very loudly. How this affects the rest of NATO is, I guess, kind of an open question. Putin is well aware and has admitted as such that, you know, a conventional war against NATO would go very badly for Russia. Russia could not stand up to a war or, you know, any kind of assault coming from Western Europe. I mean, it's just, you know, he knows this and thus all of the, uh, the nuclear posturing. Um, I'd seen estimates, though, that, you know, in the Baltics, he could be he could be in Riga probably within 36 hours, the capital of Latvia. Vilnius, the capital of Ukraine, probably much sooner. It's capital you know, of Lithuania. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Lithuania. Probably much sooner. It's it's actually much, much closer to the borders than either Tallinn in Estonia or, or Riga in Latvia. There are sizable Russian populations there. 
it would be easy for him to transfer the excuse that he's been using to invade Ukraine over to the Baltic states. It would be very easy, especially in a town like Narva, which is, you can literally see Russia from Narva. It is, it is right across the river and it is filled with Russian speakers. Whether or not this would happen, I, I just, I have to doubt it. That would be World War III. Uh-oh. And that really would be the, the worst case scenario. Yeah, because Putin knows, because if he attacked or he, you know, troops came into the Baltics or, you know, if he takes Ukraine, Poland is right there, too. If he did that, Article 5 of NATO would be triggered and it wouldn't just be Western Europe. It would be the United States, too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what that's why I mentioned Moldova, too. Moldova is not part of NATO. You know, not that he would necessarily have to invade all of Moldova. But, you know, Transnistria right there, once Ukraine falls, Transnistria would be returned to the Ukraine. I mean, that is like the first move that I see happening. An invasion of Poland, I really don't think is in the cards, at least not within the, uh, the foreseeable future. But then again, you know, a month ago, you know, I told, I told a friend of mine um, that I just don't see Russia invading. I mean, it was really, I think, about maybe two or three weeks ago that, you know, it looked like this was inevitable. And as the rhetoric, you know, really amped up, it became a near certainty. Speaking of this rhetoric, too, there's, I mean, there's, there's another point, at least in the Russian media, that has really kind of been disturbing lately, at least as far as, you know, the conduct of the war goes. They are concentrating, as I said before, mostly on what's happening in the East. They're using words like liberation that they are liberating these, these towns and these cities and these people from you know, a tyrannical Ukrainian regime. We talked about Nazis before. This is, the same, this is the same vocabulary that they were using as the Soviet army was marching west towards Berlin, liberating places that used to be under the, uh, the Nazi thumb. Now, Liberation was very much a relative term. I mean, you were trading the Nazis for, you know, the Stalinist regime, but this is what's happening right now, too. So one would have to think that they are going to push further and further west, you know, to ostensibly liberate people from the tyranny that they see going on there. Good to know. All right. Well, Dr. Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for explaining this whole situation a lot better than I can. It's definitely ongoing. So hopefully be able to have you back to talk about this once again. But thanks for coming on the podcast. Yep, it's definitely a fluid situation. Thanks for having me on here. Sanders Packs. Thank you once again to Dr. Bobby for coming on the podcast to give us the know-how on everything that is going on in Ukraine. So that was part one of our podcast this week. Part two, we've got another guest. Our NBA analyst, Hillbilly. Oh, yay. Is on the podcast this week. We are breaking down the contenders in the NBA because there's only less than two months left in the regular season. Basketball is starting to heat up. So we've got Hillbilly here on part two of the Xander's Facts podcast. Here we go. This is Xander's Facts. Xander's Facts podcast. Welcome back, y'all. We are on episode 55. We are talking NBA hoops on the podcast and we've got our special guest our nba analyst hillbilly is back on the podcast hillbilly thanks for jumping on the pod once again thank you for having me once again so we are just after all-star break that just happened a week ago 
So, but we are talking about our contenders in the league because we are way past the midway point of the season. We've got less than two months of the regular season left. So we've got teams separating themselves from the rest, our contenders. We've got Hillbillies contenders this week. He said he's got 14 teams who are his contenders. We're going to go down from 14 to one and talk about those. So let's start. Hillbilly, your 14th contender in the league right now. So the, the, the team that I would consider to be the 14th most likely to win the finals. So you got to take it with a grain of sand that I do not think this team is going to win the title this year is the Dallas Mavericks. I think anytime you have a star with the ability of Luka Doncic, you have an outside chance. Everything would have to break right for the Mavericks because they just don't have reliable scoring around Luka. But the thing that they're doing that people aren't paying attention to is their defense. It is one of the best in the league. I forget the the statistic, but it's like over the last 20 games or so, it's the best in the league. And they're just playing great defense. The offense has just been a little spotty. But if the team got hot and enough teams get injured ahead of them, I think that they actually have an outside chance, but I wouldn't bet any money on it. So 14th contender for Hillbilly are the Mavericks, even though they're probably not going to win. So Hillbilly, number 13. At number 13, I have the Lakers. And honestly, I would put them beneath the Mavericks. But I mean, you've got LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the same team. You, You just, you cannot count them out. It could happen. It just seems like it's less likely to happen every single day. You know, last night they played the Clippers. And I think it's really telling that, you know, I started watching that game and it's like the Clippers are probably going to beat them. And I think I I bet, I don't know what the odds were, but I'll bet the the betting odds. That was a strange sentence, but I will bet the betting odds were in favor of the Clippers. And the crazy thing there is the Clippers don't have Kawhi or Paul George. The Lakers had two out of their three big stars and they still were an underdog to the Clippers. And indeed the Clippers beat them. You know, and it's just that's where the Lakers are right now, even with two out of three of their stars playing and and healthy. They just they don't have it this year. But who knows with AD and LeBron. What do you say? Yeah, check back in a week or two. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers are just completely off of this list. Yeah, they're they're ninth right now. They are below 500 in the West. Like they're not very good. And you can kind of tell LeBron's putting out, you know, signals. He's like. Well, I might want to go play with Bronny my final year, or I could go back to Cleveland, or you know, he's starting to do that thing. Seems like he's putting a lot of pressure on his son to make it into the NBA. That's a pretty demanding father, but I, I hope he does. But yeah, I, yeah, the Lakers have some really hard choices to make in the next couple of years because this is not working. They're not going to win the title this year. I don't think I don't think they're going to get out of the play-in because I think they might get the Clippers in the play-in. Well, the Clippers have played them three or four times this year, and the Clippers have won all those games against the Lakers. And there's more of a chance of the Clippers getting significantly better than there is of the Lakers. I think the Lakers, I mean, Anthony Davis is a fantastic player. You just, you can't count on him. And even when they've all three been in there, they were not but so good because there's just nobody around them. They're they're just struggling for anybody to help outside of, you know, those three. And Westbrook's not really a help, so. So Hillbilly's two least 
contenders, I guess, come from the West. All right. So number 12. Yeah. At number 12, I've got the Clippers right, uh, right there, right there behind them. And, and that's obviously, you know, now we're getting into, I think the Clippers, like if, if Kawhi and Paul George came back and were healthy and nobody knows about Kawhi, like nobody mm-hmm. has any idea. He, him and Zion Williamson are like the most mysterious cases in the NBA right now. Nobody knows if he'll be back this year or not. I'm putting him at 12 because I'm leaning on the idea that at least Kawhi will not be back. Or if he is back, he's not going to be any in shape to really do it this year. I give the Clippers a lot of credit for not tanking this year, you know, and just saying like, it's just not our year. They, they fight and scrap every single game and they're, they're fun to watch because of that. And that's why they beat teams like the Lakers. And the rumor, the latest news is that Paul George could return in March. He could. We don't ever know. And Kawhi, like we have no clue. Absolutely no. no clue. And and it's not, I mean, Steve Ballmer, the owner, has no clue. Ty Lu, the head coach, no idea what's going to happen with Kawhi. So the two Los Angeles teams coming back to back at 13 and 12. Number 11. Then next I've got Utah. I, I'm still, even though Utah's, you know, now we're taking a massive jump in the rankings. And they're they're ranked, I think they're at fourth right now in the West. So, you know, having them at 11th is, is maybe a little disrespectful. I just don't – I think this is a bad year for them. Uh-oh. I think their team chemistry is way off. I think losing guys like Joe Ingles to a long-term injury, I think it's season-ending injury, is really hard for them. And I, I still keep them on this list because they could turn it around. In the last several years, the Jazz were in a position where if things fell right and the injuries happened to the other team. Disrespect! They could have had a shot, but I think this is a much weaker year than the last two years for the Jazz, so I think it's unlikely. Rudy Gobert is currently leading the league in rebounds and blocks per game and field goal percentage. So it's basically him and... Well, Donovan Mitchell's okay, but... Well, he's got some trade rumors going around him for the offseason, possibly. So. Yeah, I think that, I don't think that him and Gobert can get along long term. I think it's pretty much over. So Jazz are 11. Number 10... Yeah. Now at number 10, you know, again, injuries are so huge this year. And it just seems like every year it gets worse and worse with injuries. And, you know, my position, I think they need to cut it down to, to 50 games in the regular season so that this stuff stops happening. But my, at number 10, I've got Denver. And, you know, Jokic is having an MVP season. It's really, I think, between him and Embiid. And we don't know about Michael Porter Jr. and Murray. But, you know, if they were to come back in time, and I think we think Murray will be back this year, but, you know, what kind of shape is he going to be in? And with Michael Porter Jr., and we're going to talk about these kinds of injuries later too, it's a back injury. Who knows? I mean, there's just, there's absolutely no telling. And, you know, people were describing Michael Porter Jr.'s back as a ticking time bomb that when it went off was going to be really bad news. And that might be what we're seeing, that he's basically done already, uh, which would be incredibly sad. But yeah. but I think if they did come back, well, I, I think the West is open enough, especially with the Chris Paul injury, that they'd have a shot at it, especially with Jokic even better than he was last year. Jokic is leading the team in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. I think he's scoring like 26 points a game on 57% shooting. 
That's insane. Like 57% overall, not at the rim. And a lot of that, and he's getting like 14, I think he leads the league in rebound, or at least he's really close to it. And a lot of those are those tip-ins he gets. He just gets like four or five of those a game where he just barely touches the ball on a tip and just has such soft hands. It's the truth. So, you know, anytime you have him, I think you got a shot. But so after that, at number nine, I've got Boston. And Boston is... You know, they, they're one of the few teams that isn't just riddled with injuries all year. They've been in better shape than a lot of teams, but, you know, they're also still kind of dealing with the fallout from Kemba not working and from Kyrie not working and just they've had some bad luck on that front. They don't really have a good center, but they're the best defense in the entire league right now. Their perimeter defense is absolutely phenomenal. You know, you've got those two incredible wings with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum that can just stop any kind of perimeter players, Um, you know, coupled with Marcus Smart, who's basically starting now and as spotty as he is offensively, he is a fantastic defensive player and kind of glue guy. And then at the trade deadline, I thought they did really well when they brought in Derek White from San Antonio. That's exactly the kind of player they needed. He is a good, usually I think played as a two guard, that is very defensive oriented and is catch and shoot. He's not going to massage the ball. He's not going to just pound it into the ground. He knows that's Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's job. If you watch him play, he gets the ball within half a second. He knows what he's doing with it. He's either passing it or shooting it really quick. And that's exactly what Boston needed. And they've shown it. Boston's been red hot. I know they had like a nine and one streak just a little bit ago. And a lot of that, their defense is just really good. I think they're going to run into problems defensively, though, when the playoffs start. Because in the East, you've got these teams that are just behemoth in the East that have these big guys inside, and Boston doesn't. Yeah, they're they're usually starting Robert Williams, or I guess they're going to start Daniel Tice now that he's back in town. Nice. Those guys are like six seven, six eight. And beat will eat them up. I, I, I think they're going to have a problems when the playoffs start, but they are the number one defense right now. Tatum is, is great and Jalen Brown is great, but ab- after that, they really don't have a good consistent offense going. Well, let me ask you, to this point, do any of the teams that I have on my list, are they also on your list? No. I only have my top three for each conference, and none of those have been on there. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I don't expect any of these teams to win it. I just think there is a... There's a scenario that I could see where they could. It's just unlikely. And then I think we're getting in after that because the next team I have is Chicago. You know, I think Chicago, if healthy, can absolutely contend with just about anybody. DeRozan has just purged himself of so many demons this year. I mean, he is an incredible clutch player now, which, you know, just didn't really have that reputation before. He's shooting extremely well at the end of games. He had, what, I think two buzzer beaters in a row about a month ago. It's just really crazy. And, you know, you put that whole team, they have so many good players on that team that I think their offense can just get them through because I think they're expecting Ball and Caruso and Patrick Williams back. And remember, Patrick Williams was the number four pick last year. Um, but those guys are injured and, you know, we'll see, but, and it's, it's a real shame because I think that between was Zach a Levine fact. and DeRozan and Vucevic has been playing a lot better. Their center had a slow start to the year, but he's been playing a lot better. They've got the offense to compete with anybody. Their defense has not been very good and they're, they have no shot blocking, 
which I think in the East is probably going to kill them. Yeah, they they on the flip side of that, they might have the offense to just keep scoring with anybody. Yeah, I don't have the Bulls as one of my contenders in the East, but they're second right now in the East. DeRozan is averaging career highs in points per game and in three-point percentage, like that offense. And that was kind of, you know, because in the offseason, they made those trades for DeRozan and Ball and Caruso or signed them. And we were like, how's, how are they going to mesh? But they, they've been a big surprise in the East. I just don't see how they can, you know, compete with the Sixers and the Bucks and teams like that if they don't have much defense. And you've got guys like DeRozan and Levine who haven't been there before. I think the Bulls are a year or two away from making that step, but not this year. That was number eight. My number seven team... And, and now I think we are really getting into teams that I think have a legitimate chance of winning it, including this one, which is Memphis. Uh, there, there's a lot to knock or to be skeptical about with Memphis. Like you just talked about with Chicago. They haven't been there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're, they're so young. They have to be by far the youngest contending team. But they're so good and they're so exciting to play. They're having so much fun out there. There. John Morant is a absolute perennial all-star, probably all NBA level player. I worry. I love watching him, but there's like four or five times a game where I'm convinced he's going to get snapped in half because he just throws his body right into the middle with guys like Marcus Morris who are ready to snap him in half. What I worry about more with Memphis though, is they don't really have a second star. They have got so many awesome like guys that you would think would be a good third player on a championship team. Guys like Jaron Jackson, Desmond Bain, who was the absolute steal of that draft. That guy is so much fun to watch and so good. You know, they, they've got all these guys that are just really, really, really good, but they just don't have a number two behind Morant. And when the playoffs get rolling and switches get tighter, rotation, the defenses rotate a lot faster and a lot tighter. You're not going to have those open shots for Desmond Bain that you're used to seeing. It's just not, it doesn't work that way. You have to have guys that can get their own buckets. And maybe Memphis does have that. They definitely could. I'm still a little skeptical that when it comes down to really hardcore playoff basketball, who else is going to be able to make it happen behind besides Jaw? So the Grizzlies are the second youngest team in the league. So they've got to be. Who's the youngest? The Thunder, who are yeah. not in this conversation. <laughs> not a contender. No. Yeah, and they've been, I would say, a huge surprise in the West. They lead the league in rebounds, blocks, and steals per game. They're second in the league in points per game. John Morant, he had a career-high 46 points on Saturday in their game. Jaron Jackson is second in the league in blocks. I, the Grizzlies are my third contender in the West. So Okay. I was just about to ask if we have gotten – because you have six teams overall. Yes, and you're at number and, seven. So and I'm at number seven. So I've got one in my top six that you don't have. At number six, I've got Brooklyn. And they are not in my – contenders really no too many facts well i think that is silly that's my expert analysis i Kyrie's looking good he looked really good putting up 38 against the bucks they're getting durant back soon 
is is the 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 word is that he's 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 on his way back. And that's what I love this time of year too, is because everybody is ramping up for playoffs now. All those injuries where it's like I'll take the night off, you're starting to see less and less of that. They're really starting in in the games are getting better. That's blasphemy. I mean, there's more effort in the games. They're they're starting to try to figure out what they're going to do in the playoffs. And I think the Nets still have the time to do it. This for me is where I start to see teams that like, I, I really think they've got a very good chance of winning it. And Brooklyn could in the next month turn into the number one contender. If it, if it turns out that Ben Simmons is actually going to, you know, develop some sort of courage and not be a total wimp, they've got a, they've got a hell of a team there. I think they're going to have some problems in the East, you know, as good as Kyrie and Durant can be. And, you know, Simmons is a, is a great defender. When you, when you look at the lineups that they're going to have and you start to think about what they're going to look like, you can see the big problem they have. Ben Simmons is not a center. Ben Simmons is not a shooter. Oof. They don't have a stretch five on that roster. They don't have a center that can just stand out there and nail three pointers. That means that they are either going to have to play a lineup with two non-shooters on it, which I don't know that you can really do that in the modern NBA, even if you have Durant and Kyrie. Maybe if you still have Harden, but even with those two, I don't think you can get by with having two guys that the defense does not care about. The other option that they have is to try to go small with either Durant or Simmons at center. And I think that Giannis will absolutely, I think he'll foul Durant out in 20 minutes. If, if, if they actually tried to put Durant on Giannis, it would, it'd be a horror show, you know, pretty, pretty quickly, I think. And we have seen consistently what Giannis does to Ben Simmons. I mean, he has no respect for that man at all. He just, he backs him down and dunks right in his face every chance he gets. And then he, He's the only person that I've ever seen Giannis be flat out disrespectful to, <laughs> where he, he literally calls him a baby routinely. And there's a really good chance that they're going to have to go through Philly. And I just don't think that Ben Simmons even gets on the plane to go to Philly. Yeah, that's why I don't have them as one of my three in the East, because they're in eighth right now. So I don't, I don't think they're going to be in the play-in but they're still going to have to face probably a really good team in the first round, if not the semifinals. So also that, and also we don't like, we're not sure about Ben Simmons either. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like Ben Simmons may, Ben Simmons may be done playing basketball. You know, he just might be done, but man, a Brooklyn Philly series would just be one of the best things I've ever seen. You know, thinking about it, like Ben Simmons shoot 40 something percent from the free throw line, just abysmal freaking numbers. Or, you know, what has been used as a point guard. It would be really interesting if they were playing Philly and they're in Philly and they start going to a hack strategy where they are putting him on the free throw line in Philly over and over and over again. And that fan base in Philly gets to just go nuts on him. You know, I, I, I could see yeah. Ben Simmons shooting the ball in the wrong direction. It could be so bad. <laughs> Well, if that happens, if they have a Philly Brooklyn series, I mean, could you imagine Ben Simmons matched up on like Joel Embiid for like one or like even well, once in the game? And that's another problem that the, the Nets would have. It's the same thing as like with Giannis. Who in the world is going to guard Embiid? 
Are you going to put Ben Simmons on Embiid? I think that that would be the last game that Ben Simmons plays. He might kill him. Like he might. <laughs> and the other option is you, you can't put Kevin Durant on him. You just can't. It, it just it, he'll he'll eat him up inside. And so then that means you got to have like Andre Drummond out there or Claxton or some other offensive non-entity that it it just doesn't really work. There you go, number six. All right, number five. So at number five, I've got Philly. We still have some really big. I mean, even though Harden and Embiid looked great together in their first game, I still have questions about the fit, and and we'll see. I think that fit naturally works a whole lot better than you know, like New Jersey or any of the other teams that we've worked. That fit should work. Embiid is such a smart player, and he's so good at at getting other players involved and sucking up the defense and finding the open guys that I really, Harden's never played with a guy like that before that's that good on the inside. It's a great one-two inside-outside punch. Well, believe it when I see it, the, but the problem that I see though is health. You know, neither one of those players ever makes it to the playoffs healthy, ever. And the idea that both of them will, because that's what they need. They need both of them to be healthy. And I would not want to bet my money on both Embiid and Harden being in peak form all the way through the finals. I just don't see it. I'd love it, though, because Embiid is one of my very favorite players. He's so great, and he has so much fun out there. But I wouldn't put my money on it. But if they do, I, I they're right up there with anybody. They could. I've got the Sixers at three for my contenders. And they're third in the East right now. And Harden scored 27 points, 12 assists and had eight rebounds in his debut with the Sixers. And he also had more than 25 points and 12 assists in his debuts with the Rockets and the Nets. He is the only player in NBA history to do that in a team debut once, and he's done it three times. But he has more debuts than the average superstar. (laughs) Although I guess that's not really true. I mean, LeBron certainly had his share as well. That's true. Um, Durant. Durant. I guess that is kind of the nature of things these days. But and that's the other thing for Harden and why I think it kind of works in their favor. This is this has got to be it for Harden. Like he has got to make this situation work. Or every GM in the league is going to know Harden is the problem. So I I really think he's going to be motivated to make it work. He's with his best friend Daryl Morey again. I think he will. I just I what I don't see is him having a epiphany and realizing that you know he's got to put the tequila bottle down you know before last call the night before a big game like he just he doesn't seem to have any interest in taking really good care of his body and he's too old for that now but we'll see so number five was the 76ers number four so at number four i have the team that i most want to win oh boy (laughs) which is the Bucs. I think the Brooke Lopez injury is really problematic for him. You know, I watch a lot of Milwaukee Bucks basketball. Um, really? I just, I don't think there's a limit to the amount of Giannis that I can watch. I mean, Giannis Antetokounmpo is, I think, the best player in the NBA right now. He plays every minute of every game Why would like you do this he is on a 10-day contract. I mean, he goes after every loose ball. 100% effort every single second. That's why they only play him 32 minutes a game, which they've done that throughout his career because they know that if they play him 40 minutes a game, he'll kill himself up there. 
He just never, he doesn't have any other gears. And it's great to watch that because the guy just cares so much. But not having Brooke Lopez is difficult. The, the narrative around Milwaukee has kind of been, they've had a, they've been slouching this regular season. They're not having the, the, the same kind of regular season. Their defense is not as good as it was last good year. Good to know. Which, of course, a lot of that is because of Brooke Lopez, who is a great defender in the middle. I mean, having Giannis and Brooke means you can't score inside. And last year, the Bucks had the number one interior defense in the league, which they typically do. And that's down this year. But, you know, when I started looking into it, it's not really the dark regular season that we thought. I mean, this year they are 12th in defense, which I thought was a much bigger drop. But last year they were 10th in defense. So, you know, it's really not, not a very significant drop. We've played 61 games and they're 36 and 25. After 61 games last year, they were 38 and 23. So 36 and 25 versus 38 and 23 is not a, a really big difference. So, I mean, you know, maybe it really isn't the case of the sky falling, you know, that, you know, you hear a lot of times when you Dash watch Bucks basketball games, you know, that things aren't the same. But I do think that come playoff basketball, they really, I think they need Brooke Lopez out there. I think it's going to be tough because that means that Giannis has to man the paint has to be the defensive stopper and I he'll do it, but I, I think he'll wear himself down doing that. Abaca was a great pickup for them because Dante DiVincenzo was not having a good year. I know he was back from injury, but his, I think he was below 30% when it comes to three point shooting, which you can't have from a guard in the NBA. So I think it was a good move getting Abaca because Abaca is really good. At, he's, he's a lot like Brooke Lopez. He's a really good rim defender, and he can nail the three. So, you know, we'll see. That's why I've got him at fourth. We're now in the territory of teams that, you know, like there's not that much difference between Milwaukee yeah. and the next three. And I've got the Bucks at number two in the East. And like you said, you've got Giannis there. Giannis is going to do what Giannis does. The issue is the supporting cast around him. Are they going to have Brooke Lopez? What's Chris Middleton going to play like? Drew Holiday, Bobby Portis, those guys. Because those guys showed up last year and they won the title. But if they don't show up this year then in the playoffs, then that's going to be an issue. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I know what we're going to get out of Drew Holiday from defensively. He's, he's as good as it gets at his position defensively. But offensively, he can really be all over the map. And even Middleton, that's why I've never really bought into Middleton being like a perennial all-star because he's just so erratic. I mean, there will be whole games where it's like, was he even playing? You never think that about Giannis. You know, Giannis puts his stamp on every single game. Uh, Middleton's just not that kind of player, I don't think. And I don't know that he's going to become it. But he is, he's really good. And if they if they get back on track, you know, for the playoffs like they did last year and things break right for him, they're they're as good as anybody else, I think. Yeah. So the Bucks are number four for Hillbilly. They're number two for me in the East. We're down to the top three, Hillbilly. Number three. I have probably the, the team that I most want to win, the second team that I most want to win, which I never would have thought I would say this before this year, is Golden State. Wow. I, I, I really was so sick of Golden State when they were crushing it. You know, because and, – and you think about it, that was the last time – that we had an absolute juggernaut in the league. 
where if they were healthy, they win. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I love I love Toronto so much, but there's no way they win that series if Golden State was healthy. They're just they're, they're, there's so much talent there, but there's so much to like about what the Warriors have done this year. It's just again a back injury with Draymond Green, who suppose I think there was some news either today or yesterday that he is practicing now. Because it's, again, we're ramping up for the playoffs and it's put up or shut up time. You can't just start in game one of the playoffs. You, you've got to ramp up to it. Yeah. So I'm a little bit worried that he might be coming back early. But man, we have seen what a difference Draymond Green makes. I mean, you know, you can say that Steph Curry, and he is the MVP of that team, but Draymond Green is like the co-MVP of that team. When Draymond Green, he went out on January 9th. When he went out, they were 30 and nine. And I think they either had the best record or Phoenix and them were just neck and neck. Since then, they're 13 and eight. You know, without Draymond, you know, they've lost almost as many games in 20 games as they did in 40. So they're literally winning at half the rate. They have to have Draymond back. He's so important, even offensively for them. They talk about the screens that he sets, the way that him and Clay and Curry all know each other so well. They know exactly what they're doing. But if he does come back and he's healthy, I think they are the team to beat. It's just back injuries are tough to bet on. But if he comes back, I think they are the best team in the in the league. And actually, I don't I don't even think it's going to be close come the playoffs. The way those teams play together and the supporting cast around them. I mean, Andrew Wiggins is a legitimate all-star. He didn't just squeak in. I mean, he is having an incredible year. And then you've got other guys like Jordan Poole is, is a great guy coming off the bench for them. They're still expecting Wiseman back. And then Kuminga looks like the next superstar. I mean, every time you watch Golden State play, Kuminga is doing, he, he, he almost, he doesn't have anywhere, any like the same game as like Zion. But he's kind of got that thing where, like, you just – he's so much more physically capable than almost anybody else out there that he can just get to the rim whenever he wants to. And with the tutelage that he's getting in Golden State, and he seems to be really receptive to it. You know, like, he, he takes the brow beatings that he gets from Draymond when he messes up on defense to the point now where Kuminga's actually looks like a really good defender too. And so you put all those players together. I think that's just way too much for anybody to handle. And I think they're right back there. And the, the crazy thing about Golden State, if Kuminga's as good as it looks like he is, because Moses Moody also looks like a great draft pick, the Warriors are going to be good for like another four or five years. Yeah, I've got I've got the Warriors as top in the West and top overall, actually, especially if Draymond comes back because Steph is back or Steph has been back, but Clay's back too. And he's looking better and better every week. Yeah, I think Clay is huge. Oh, yeah. You you got a guy that can do the Clay Thompson's probably the best. I mean, it's probably hyperbolic to say it and recency bias, but I mean, as far as best catch and shoot player in NBA history, I don't have anybody that comes to mind that's better than him. I mean, he is just the best at knowing exactly where he needs to be on the three-point line and making that decision in under half a second to put it up. And when you got a guy like that playing with Steph Curry who can break down any defense, it gets so tough. And then when you have Wiggins on the other side, also nailing threes, 
I, I don't know what you do with that. And then the fact that they're the second best defense in the league. And like you said, the Warriors were not a likable team back then when they were just running through the league. They were more likable than I would say the Heat were in the big three days. But now you've got, you know, Curry. Curry's not, you, you can't really hate Curry. He needs to keep that, that mouth guard in his mouth. I am <laughs> sick of watching him chew on <laughs> Well, uh, if that's your problem. But you're rooting for Clay because he just yep. had two ACL tears. You know, the Warriors are a likable team now. I, I agree. And I'm, I'm rooting for, and I, I really, Curry does annoy me. He's always annoyed me. The, the sh- uh, shimmy that he does, it's always annoyed me. But I can't help but reform this year. They have the pedigree, obviously. They have the experience. They know exactly what is required of them. They know exactly where their game needs to be at to win the finals. They've got all the pieces. It's just Draymond Green's back. I don't think they can do it without Draymond in there. All right. Warriors number three for Hillbilly. Number one for Xander, though. But Hillbilly, number two on your contender list. So at number two, and I think this will probably make you happy. Yes, it will. It's going to be obvious who number one is. At number two is Phoenix. Chris Paul is so, so critical to this team. I mean, he was injured on February 16th. And they said on February 16th, which was right at the All-Star break, six to eight weeks after February 16th puts him right into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have to ramp it up quick. And Paul is another one of those guys that he has had the worst huh. luck with health in the playoffs every single year. Every single one. He's never had a good playoff run. You know, his entire career, he's been on some good teams. But he's so critical to that team. With Chris Paul, this year, statistically, they are the best clutch team in NBA history. Their shooting percentage is something like 70% in the last two minutes of the game, which is insane. Usually your shooting percentage goes down in the last couple of minutes because defenses are so tight. But Phoenix just turns that on their head, turns it on its head, and they just they clamp down and they execute their offense absolutely perfectly because of Chris Paul. They are 23 and three in games that are within five points in the final five minutes. So in clutch time, 23 and three in clutch games, they win basically every single clutch game they have because they do not make mistakes. But Chris Paul, uh, without him in there to make that happen, and it is Chris Paul because he did the same thing in Oklahoma City. You know, he does that in a lot of places where he goes, but it was true in Oklahoma City where I remember them talking about That's that two years ago where it's like, okay, Oklahoma City stinks and they weren't, they weren't very good, but they were the best clutch team in the NBA, even though they weren't that good because Chris Paul is so good in clutch time. I still put them at number two because I think that Paul will come back. I think he can get, I think they will make it through their first round series. And then that hopefully would be enough time for him to get it back together. And everybody being healthy, I don't know, it's between them and Golden State, who's the best team if they're both healthy. I just think there's less of a chance of Draymond Green being truly healthy than Chris Paul. I think a back injury is different than a thumb. I think when Chris Paul comes back, He'll be Chris Paul relatively soon. Okay. Yeah. I've got, I mean, the Suns are number two in the West for me. And 
I would have put him number two, even without the Chris Paul injury, but that Chris Paul injury is so huge. You know, you've got Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton who have now been there, but Chris Paul was the one, you know, Chris Paul was on the team for the first time last year. And that's finally when they came together and, you know, broke through in the West. Chris Paul is the piece that they need, I think, to, you know, get there. I think Devin Booker's going to be a superstar potentially, but he's I'm not there yet to lead the Suns team. They need Chris Paul. Phoenix is number two for Hillbilly. Number one, we all know, and actually, Hillbilly's number two team faced off against Hillbilly's number one team back in January. The number one team won 123 to 100. So the Thunder beat the Suns? The Thunder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number one for Hillbilly. So, yeah, number one for me is, I think, by process of elimination, pretty obviously Miami, which is interesting because I don't think they're the most talented team by any stretch, and they've certainly got problems. But they're the only team right now that they're ready to go. And I think that counts for a lot. I mean, they're going to have a smoother ramp up to playoff intensity basketball than any of the other teams because they're all ready. Now, they weren't throughout most of the year. I mean, Miami has I mean, if you say the big three for Miami is, you know, in whatever order, Kyle Lowry, Bam, and Butler. If USA they're their big three, I think they, until recently, had played together for like a total of 50 minutes. In, in the whole year or some crazy number like that, but they're all around now. Tyler hero seems like he is just getting ready to go off in the playoffs and they just don't need as many. They don't need anything else really good to happen to them. They just don't need anything bad to happen to them. Whereas every other team in the list so far needs a lucky break. Like golden state needs Draymond green. Uh, Phoenix needs Chris Paul to come back and be ready to go instantaneously in the playoffs. All of those teams need something. Milwaukee needs Brooke Lopez. Miami is ready to go. And yeah, they've got problems. I think that Miami, I mean, what we saw Milwaukee do to Miami last year is telling. And I think Miami is still going to have the same problems. When you get to playoff level basketball with playoff intensity, I don't know that Miami has the half court offense to get it done. I just, they, they rely so much on the transition game. They are in the bottom half of the league in half court offense. No team in the modern era has ever won the finals unless they were in the top 10 in half court efficiency. It's because it, it, in the playoffs, everything slows down so much. And if you don't have a really smoothly executing offense in that half court, which is what playoff basketball is all about, it becomes really hard to get points. And Miami's going to play, you know, they're going to play as hard as they possibly can. And they've got some really good players. I just don't, you know, I think that's going to be problematic for them. But on the flip side of this, Kyle Lowry has been fine for Miami so far. He is going to be a lot better in the playoffs. He knows exactly what he's doing. You know, he is putting, he's making sure that he has enough left in the tank to go all out in the playoffs. And him and Butler and Adebayo together in the playoffs, healthy, they're going to be a tough out every single night. A lot of those teams, if the three-point shot doesn't work for them, they lose. And Miami's not really built that way. You know, they can win other ways. And they've got, you know, other guys, you know, whether it's Duncan Robinson or, you know, I think Tyler Hero is getting ready to take another star turn. I just don't think they need anything to go right for them to be a contender. They're ready to go. I think the only thing they need is to stay healthy. And even if they don't, 
they've been near or at the top of the East for most of the year. And like you said, they haven't had, you know, their big three or Hero or Robinson, you know, play together for most of it. So I've got Miami number one in the East too. I think Miami is going to be in the playoffs, the best coach team out of all the contenders. And I think that's why I put them ahead of Philly and Milwaukee. Although I do think that if, I think if Brooke Lopez comes back, I think they'll, they'll be able to handle Miami, but you know, that's the interesting thing. I mean, Milwaukee killed Miami last year and the year before that Miami just humiliated Milwaukee. So who knows? And that's the thing, like they get in your head guys like Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry are as psychologically hardened as it gets. Like they are two of the most competitive, hardcore players out there. And that counts for so much in the playoffs. So I've got Miami number one in the East. Actually, I would put them number three overall, though. I think the Suns and the Warriors are above Miami. I don't think I, I could see Miami going to the finals over the Sixers and the Bucks. I think it'd be close. I think they could get there, though. But I don't see them beating the Warriors or the Suns in the finals. Well, I see them beating the Warriors without Draymond. And I see them beating the Suns without Chris Paul being 100%. I think they would beat the Suns. And that's why I put Miami at number one, is because they are the only one of these really top-tier contenders. All they need is, is no one else to get hurt, which every team needs that. All the other teams, though, they have an additional requirement. They also need somebody to come back and to come back ready to rock and roll and play off basketball. Every single one of those teams does, except for, I guess, Philly. Philly's, Philly's also pretty healthy, but we just have some real question marks. And I think it's much more likely that Harden comes up lame in the playoffs than Jimmy Butler does. All right, so there you go. Hillbillies, top contenders right now in the NBA, the top 14. We are less than two months until playoff basketball. The regular season is starting to heat up. Teams are starting to get guys healthy, put their starting lineups together for what they're going to have in the playoffs. All right, Hillbilly, that is our contenders. That's our season update for the NBA right now. Xander's Facts, NBA analyst, Hillbilly. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Are we done yet? Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you once again to Hillbilly, our NBA analyst, for jumping on the podcast this week. Huge podcast, two separate guests, two big topics, NBA, and of course, what's going on in Ukraine. Thanks to Dr. Bobby and Hillbilly for coming on the podcast this week. And that is what we've got for you on episode 55 of the Xander's Facts podcast, officially the longest ever Xander's Facts podcast, but we split it up into two parts, so it's okay. Nope. But thank you all for listening to episode 55 of the podcast. We're going to be back with a new episode next week, episode 56. Probably going to have an update on the situation in Ukraine and college basketball's conference tournaments are next week. Actually, a couple of them start this week, but the big power conferences are next week. Xander's preview, of course, is coming up next week. So remember, episode 56 is coming up next week. But thank you all for listening to episode 55 of the Xander's Facts podcast. And if you liked all the facts on this podcast, there's a ton of them. Remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate the podcast, review the podcast. Go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Xander's Facts, that's zero with a Z. Subscribe on YouTube. This episode is going to be available on YouTube as well. Xander's Facts on YouTube. Check it out. And most importantly, tell all your friends, spread the facts, especially on Ukraine. There's a ton of misinformation going on out there, but no misinformation, only facts. Facts!
on the Xander's Facts podcast. Check out the link tree for all Xander's Facts. You can find all the links there for Xander's Weekend Facts, which you need to subscribe to, YouTube, all that stuff on the link tree page, which is linked on this episode's description. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 55 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all with episode 56 next week. That took forever.